Hi, this is Joe Chambers. Welcome to Musicians Hall of Fame Backstage. This week's guest is Steve Lukather. This is part two of a two-part interview we did with Steve. Just couldn't contain such a great musician and just a funny guy in one story. So we hope you enjoy this. When we come back, Steve Lukather. So the, you were on, was it Beat It? From yeah, oh well, yeah. No, no, that, that was funny because I did, the first session we did for Quincy, I, I had done the Dude record with Quincy. David Foster introduced me to him. We, I sort of got invited to be like, you know, in Quincy's crew. And I was like 22, 23 years old. Mm -hmm. After we did that, uh, he came up to me at the, and said, look, man, I'm going to do the next Michael record. And it was coming off Off the Wall. So I hadn't, didn't do it. I didn't do that record. He goes, I want you to play on some of this Michael Jackson. I was like, oh, this is going to be one of the biggest records. Okay, cool. I'm there. I'm all in. So he hired. The first thing he did was call me. He goes, yeah, the first track we're going to cut is with Paul McCartney. I'm like, Mike, <laughs> like, trying to keep it together. Like, really? Great. You know? So I'm, I hang up the phone. I go, I can't. I'm going to play with one of the Beatles. One of my all-time here. The reason why I breathe and live and why I you know, play music. And so, you know, and he hired Jeff Picaro and me, and then David Page was there too. With David Foster, Lewis Johnson, and I forget who else was on there. They might have been it, and Paul and Michael. And the song was The Girl's Mine. And, you know, Quincy didn't write stuff for me, really. It was just chord charts, and, you know. So I came up with a good part for the song. You know, well, leading up to that, I was going to meet Paul, and like we were all really nervous. We almost had to be vetted because it was very soon after the right. tragic loss of John, being around new people in Hollywood, and just wanted, you know, I mean, not they were scared of me, but it was like they wanted to know who everybody was on the session. Mm -hmm. Super high security and all that stuff because Michael, you know, those are the, you know, the two big, you know, biggest stars in the world at the time. And thrilled to be on the session, you know. That's when I kind of went, I think that I worked my way up here, you know. I, was, I, did, I didn't say it, but I felt it inside. Mm -hmm. I'm looking around, Paul and Linda walk in, and there's Michael, and I'm like going, this is like surreal, right? And we started jamming on uh, I Was Made to Love Her, Stevie Wonder song, which somewhere exists on a tape, or may not, maybe they didn't roll the tape. There's Bruce Swedine, Ed Cherney was the second engineer, and Quincy and, and George Martin was there. Jeff Emmerich was there. I'm looking out in the room, it's like, this is like, you know, a childhood wet dream, you know, <laughs> musical wet dream, if you will. And I wanted to go, I better play good, man, this better be good. And Paul and Linda were so gracious and nice. And Michael was cool, man, he was great. Because the first time he called me, I didn't believe it was him. I hung up on him three times. He called me eight in the morning, hi, this is Michael, and I'm going, fuck you. <laughs> You know, sorry. <laughs> and it happened three times. And then I got a call from Quincy's office three hours later. That was really Michael, man. You better call him back. And I'm like, oh my God. So I called back the number. He answers. And I go, um, this is Luke at there. I, I'm, I don't even know what to say. He goes, I didn't really believe it was. He goes, I get that all the time. It's funny. So it was cool with him. So it was, anyway, so I get the call. I, going backwards, we get the call. We go down and do the session. And, you know, Paul and Linda walk in, and they were so nice and so great. And I was so, like, I was trying not to keep my jaw in my mouth. And just to loosen it up, I think Paige started playing I Was Made to Love Her, because, you know, and Jeff jumped in, and I started playing, and they started singing. And they 
it was in the phones. I'm going, this is, this is like you're kidding me, right? Is, am I going to wake up here anymore? And it went great. And then we cut the track very quickly, and I came up with kind of a cool little part, and Paul goes, that's a great part, man. And at that point, I could have died. And Michael was cool. Everybody was fine. Quincy was like, oh, this is great. And then we got the track and everything. I walked out of there going, wow. So then he called, you know, I get another, you know, then, then I got, I think it was like Beat, that Beat It came because it was weird. They had cut a version of it prior to this and they wanted Eddie Van Halen and Ed and I are dear friends and we have been, we were friends even back then. And he didn't do sessions or nothing like that. They had cut a version of it and Ed, and, they, and, they, and these are the days when they had two 24 track machines and used to make slave tapes. You know, you make one and then they copy so you could do a bunch more overdoors at the end. They put it all together in two reels and you mix. That was really high tech stuff for 1982. And we were using that stuff in our, on our records as well. And Eddie and Don Landy, I guess, cut the two inch tape and he wanted to edit and play the solo somewhere else. No, he didn't want to play on just da da da. He wanted to play through the verse change so he had something to play off, some changes to play off. Well, when you cut the Simpty code, it doesn't lock back up. Mm -hmm. So what they did was Eddie's solo and Michael's lead vocal and Michael hitting two and four on a drum case and the Simpty code were on the master reel. Because Ed had cut the slave tape, they transferred that to the somehow. And then they needed to recut the track to the saver stuff. There wasn't drum machines and there wasn't a click track on it at all. Just Michael, bap, bap. Bah, which is still on the record. And so Quincy goes, you gotta save me. You gotta save me, Don. I'm still working on all this stuff over here at Westlake. You gotta go to Sunset Sound with Umberto Gatica. You and Jeff go over there and see if you can fix this for me. I gotta have it. It's first generation vocal, first generation Van Halen solo. You gotta make this work for me so I can sync up the track with a fresh tape that hadn't been cut. So they sent it over, we listen, we can, and there, oh, you can hear it bleed through in the lead vocal mic. So you got kind of got an idea what was going on. Jeff, having the time that he had in his profession, I mean, one of the most magical human beings on planet Earth that I ever got to know and play with and be a brother. And so Jeff went out and, with his sticks, listened to that, had it cranked the phones, and he made his own click track. Just the way he wanted to hear it, not necessarily the groove that ended up, which is more straight like this, but he put a little, little shuffle into it so he could make, make it swing, make it feel. And he went out, he goes, okay, they got a drum sound up quick. And he went out there and he did a couple takes. I think the second take was nailed. His time was perfect, it was great. He nailed it. So it was my turn. So it was like, okay, Eddie's playing on it. So I got like the Marshalls and I, and I played the guitar riff first. And we quadrupled and made it big and I, there was no bass on it, so I said, bring me down a bass and I'll play the bass on it. This is just the riff tune. You know, it's not like I had to be Jocko Pastorius or anything like that. And so I did all that. We sent it to Quincy. He goes, I love it, except the guitars are too heavy. I got to get this on R&B radio, pop radio, and rock radio. He goes, you know that little lamp you have, that you know, little deluxe? He goes, do that and don't quadruple, just do two, so I can get it like that. So I did that. They loved it. And then Quincy goes, come on down with Michael. We're going to do some. He wants to add a couple of these other riffs, which the da 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 and that's all they had. And, I, and that was just so monotonous. I said, why don't we do it da 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 to give it something, a little different flavor. And at first they were a little hesitant, and Michael was, I like that. So 
they wanted me to do this part, and they're standing there, and I did it a couple of times, and Quincy's like, it's not really in the pocket, you know, lay in the pocket a little bit more. And Michael's gonna gave me a couple little bit of directions and stuff like that. Let's try it again. And I started doing it. Michael started dancing around a little bit. I knew I was right. And Quincy's like, that's, yeah, that's great. Let's double that part and blah, blah, blah. And that's the record. And then they mixed it. I think uh, it might have been Steve Picard, Greg Filling is the made that synth sound bow, at the beginning of it that you never hear again anywhere in the song. And the rest is the rest. And the third track we did, Steve Picaro wrote. Human nature. Mm -hmm. I think John Bettis helped with some lyrics, but it's really Steve Picaro's baby. And Steve had all these magical synthesizer things. He had all the polyfuses, and he was really early on an innovator for. Uh, that's the, even in high school he was into electronic music before anyone. He that found he found that, that was his thing. You know, he wasn't Oscar Peterson, you know, or nothing like that. You know, he found a niche that nobody else was doing, which mm -hmm. ended up being a big career for him. Mm -hmm. Steve had demoed it up, and there was no guitar or anything on it. It was just synths and the chord changes and the chorus. Why, why, tell them that it's human nature, right? So Quincy goes, calls me, and he goes, like, literally closer than you are. You and I, he goes, he goes, look, you got to make this funky for me. you got to make this funky for me. Actually, Quincy used to come up with nicknames for people if you liked to. But my, my publishing company at the time was Rath the Cool Veets, and that's Steve backwards. So he started calling me Veets, which is pretty funny. So he goes, Vitz, you gotta make this funny for me, man. funky for me. It's like, you know, I wanna get this pop, but I gotta get it on our R&B too. He was always doing the crossover king, mm -hmm. you know, and Quincy was a great casting director, finding musicians and co-mingling them together to get what he wanted. And so I, I just came up with this part. I go, you, you, I want something a little different. So I said, I looked at Bruce Swedeen, I go, I got an idea. Plug this, I had this really silly red guitar with all the, and I plugged it direct into it and I came up with the initial part. I worked through a couple of these, he goes, that's great, that's good. He liked it so much he wrote out the part and put it on the thing. So if he liked your stuff, that's what he would do. Mm -hmm. And I came up with the part that's on the record. I said, let's double track it and give it a little, you know, a little sideways thing. Because if you notice, the guitar sounds rather interesting on that. And it worked and, and it was great. And I was really actually proud of the part because it was very musical. And it, as well as a little bit funky. It wasn't like our like hardcore R&B funky, but it added a little lilt to the thing because it was really kind of whole noted. And Steve Picaro hated the part, absolutely hated my guitar part. I'm like, I'm, what do you want me to say? Anyway, it becomes a huge hit record, and then he, and then he started to like the guitar part, or you know, apparently a lot. And then Quincy liked it so much, he gave me a ranging credit on the on the record. That's nice. And I got nominated for a Grammy for it. Wow, that's that's really cool. Huh? So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and so it was a really positive experience. Who knew it was going to be one of the biggest records of all time? No kidding. And uh, it was weird because our album won Album of the Year the year before, and then Thriller was the next Album of the Year. Mm -hmm. That's where we were on two years in a row on that. Although nobody gave us much love for that, you know. A lot of the critics didn't like us too much, so they didn't want to really admit that we had anything to do with it. They, they don't understand what studio musicians are all about. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Page took me aside once for the first time I ever met him. Actually, the first and only time I ever met him, there was an event at Guitar Center in L.A., and I went with Eddie Van Halen to go. Every guitar player, rock guitar player, was there, and it, we walked in the door. It was Jimmy, who was the guest of honor for this thing, a Marshall thing, you know, closed door event. And we went in. I was like, I get to meet Jimmy Page. How cool is this going to be? And I walk in with Ed, and uh, Jimmy points at me. He goes, I want to talk to you, and I move out of the way. Things Ed, you know, I'm like, he goes, No, 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 Steve, come here. Okay, and I, well, he took me aside in the room. Everybody's kind of looking at me like, 
Hey, because I want to tell you something. I read in, an art, I read in a, a guitar magazine that you said, like, well, you know, being a studio musician, people give you heat for it, as opposed to maybe I'd be taken more seriously as a rock guitar player if I didn't do all that stuff. And Jimmy goes, that's not true. He goes, I was a studio musician. John Paul Jones was a studio musician. He goes, a lot of those guys out there, they don't understand what that is and what it takes to be. You should be very proud of that. And I'm looking at him like, I'm looking at him like, are you serious, Jimmy Page? I, I, I gave him a hug and I said, thank you. I go, can I tell people you said that? And he laughed at me. He goes, yeah, man. He was such a beautiful cat, an Englishman gentleman, you know what I mean? And I kept that to myself for years. I think I told that. I said, you believe it? And then he came out and was so gracious to everybody. But I had that moment, you know what I mean? And it made me... You've invalidated whatever it was that you might have... So what I'm saying, to get a validation from him and also to be hired by people like Quincy and Michael, Mm -hmm. it sort of negates some angry hipster in New York, you know what I mean? And we took took it from the LA hipsters. It wasn't just them. It was just... So, speaking of validation, so you're in town playing with Ringo. How did that happen? Well, you know, I always knew about the all-star band and... It was something I go, wouldn't it be great if I could get into that? You know, I loved it because, you know, George Harrison became a friend of mine. After Jeff passed away, um, we were having a, a tribute to him. It was an amazing tribute with so many legendary people that he had worked with and that were heroes of mine, also in many cases friends. And I went out to a club and he was there. George Harrison was there. And I'm going, oh, my Lord, this is the reason why I play guitar. He's in the VIP section. I don't know what, why he was there. It was a freakish thing. Sort of like meant to be, I guess, maybe. And I asked the bouncer, I said, and they let me in. I said, look, I don't want to bother the guy. I just want to shake his hand and say thank you for everything, and I'll walk away. I'd worked with, you know, Paul, so I, that was why I said, I'm going to tell him I worked with Paul. And not that that would, I don't know, whatever. I didn't know how he would react. We might have said, like, you know, you know. But he's like, no, come on over, come on over. And I met him. And I was, you know, really gracious. I said, I want to take any of your time. He goes, no, sit down, order a drink or something like that. Something he asked me to sit down. So, you know, I had a drink or two and I loosened up a little bit and I was, you know, I'd say, man, I don't want to be that guy, but I just want to say that I play music because of you. And I, you know, you said the first thing that hit me hard was your soul. And I saw her standing there. I go, I must have wore that out just picking up the needle playing. There was just the sound, the way you played it. And that made him smile a little bit. And I, and I said the solo on this, that, and I knew the ones that he did and the ones that he didn't. A lot of people go, I loved your solo on Taxman. He's like, oh, that was Paul, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, so I knew the ones that he did and how much I knew all his solo stuff. And he took a shot. I was, you know, making him laugh. And he enjoyed, enjoyed the hang. And we, I was there for hang with him for about an hour or so. And I was like going, wow, this is too cool. And they started to close the clubs. It was like a time to say goodbye. And I looked over at him. I said, I know this is a crazy long shot, but you know we're doing a gig. I explained that our drummer had passed away, one of the greats of all time, Jeff McCarr, and he had heard the name. Jim Keltner, mm-hmm. who obviously knew George well. I mean, I, we had a lot of mutual friends. I dropped the right names, and he knew I was legit because I knew certain things. You know, and I said, you know, all the guys are going to be there. I said we're having a, a special, you know, a tribute to Jeff at the amphitheater in two days, you know, and the last song we play is a little help with my friends, and we do kind of like the Joe Cocker version or whatever. If you got eyes and you want to pop in, sit in or something like that, I know this is like a billion to one chance, but I'd kill myself if I didn't ask. <laughs> and he goes, well, I might show up, I might show up, I'll leave a couple tickets at the back, and, you know, 
I, you know, no pressure. And I just want to say it meant the world to me to meet you, you know. And I walked out just high as a kite that I met George Harrison. And he was nice to me, and I had a moment. Thrilled. So that's, I worked with Paul, I met George, I went, wow, this is beyond my wildest dreams. No, he, I'm sitting backstage at the event at the uh, amphitheater, and Donald Fagan's there. I mean, like, Boss Skaggs, Michael McDonald, I'm David Crosby, David James and Howard. We had all, I mean, I could go on and I'm, I'm missing people here. Uh, Don Henley, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, guys that normally wouldn't show up to these things showed up because they all love Jeff, and Jeff worked with all of them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And plus all of us. And I'm sitting at the piano back there, and we're kind of working out who's going to sing what on Little Help of My Friends. And I get it. Somebody's here to see. I go, really? This is a bad time. We we're all, I, I was sitting with my guitar, Paige and Steve were all there on the piano. We're figuring out. He goes, no, somebody from Liverpool is here to see you. And I took a gasp, and I went, and I turned around, and there's George standing in the hall. He goes, but you didn't think I was going to show up. I said, no, I really didn't. And every, I didn't really say anything to anybody because I didn't think he was going to show up. And everybody's like, jaws went like this. And he goes, you fancy me to play on something like that? And, and I go, yeah. And I had my uh, 59 Les Paul there, right, my burst. And I said, well, you can play this, you know. And, he goes, and we start playing it, you know, like the Cocker version, which we had already rehearsed up. And he started playing it again, and he stopped, he goes, that's not the way me and the lads played it. <laughs> and I said, I, you know, what do you say? It's like, I'm going like, oh my God. He goes, I got it, I got it. And he, and we did the whole show, and everybody was out there. I mean, the magic of Donald Fagan hadn't played, the Steely Dan wasn't together, and Fagan hadn't been to L.A. because he hates L.A., but he came out for Jeff. And so we were going to do Chain Lightning and Josie, and like, when we announced, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we had one of Jeff's friends, and uh, I didn't say who it was. And we started, and people, it was the intro of Chain Lightning. And all of a sudden, the, the Fagan comes out on roads with sunglasses on, they roll them out, and the place went crazy, right? And then we, Boz came out, we did Lowdown, you know, we, oh, everybody who was there, we did amazing stuff with. And, the, and then you know, and the, we, we ended it with, Eddie Van Halen and I doing uh, Ain't Talking About Love, and then he played Hold the Line, we did a jam. We walked up the stage, the place went crazy. Encore, right? We're gonna come out and do a little help with my friends. So I'm gonna come out and introduce everybody. And everybody's going, wow, everybody's gonna do a jam. I said, one last, uh, one last uh, unplanned moment here. I forget how I said it, I paraphrased it. I said, somebody really special is in the house, and I decided to come out and jam with us on this last song, ladies and gentlemen, George Harrison. He walked on the stage. And it was like the loudest scream I had ever heard in my life. And it was, everybody was just like, the face is cracked. And just like, and we did the two. And there's pictures of it. And I'm in my book and you can find it anywhere. It was magic. And then, and then after that, you know, we, we exchanged numbers and we started, he'd call me to hang out and go for dinner and stuff. He played me free as a bird before he came out. He invited me to dinner one night. Uh, with Kelton and all these guys. He said, meet me at this Italian restaurant. He used to leave these amazing messages on my the old school. Mm-hmm. It got lost, you know, one of those kind of things. It, it wasn't real to real. It was a digital, you know, with a blackout it goes. See you later. Yeah. And there was a blackout in the hills where we lost all these great messages from all these amazing people that I used to keep. And so I go to dinner. It's like, you know, all of a sudden Bob Dylan walks in the room. <laughs> it's like, 
I I was there early, and you know, and I'm going. Bob Dylan just walked in. I'm going. Oh my God, this is too deep. And and then Keltner and all these other people, and, and I'm sitting. George is here. I'm sitting here, and Dylan is sitting here. I'm like, it, 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 it was a really long story, but I mean, it was a, it was an insane night. He would do stuff like we ended up at a jam at uh, Jeff Lynn's house afterwards. So I was playing. Was it Keltner on an electronic kit? Bob Dylan was playing bass. I was playing an acoustic guitar, and George was playing a Rickenbacker, and Jeff Lynn was playing a, uh, like, uh, like a, I don't know, some kind of synth thing. And we were just goofing about for a while, and it was just telling stories and hanging, and I, play, you know, I started playing I Want to Tell You and stuff like that, and he started playing and singing a little bit. And it was something that I will never, ever forget in my life, you know what I mean? And so, I don't know where we were going with that, but I told the story. Ringo. Uh, Ringo, and then I heard Greg Bissonette, my brother. Hey, hey hold on a second. We'll be right back. The Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum has been celebrating the men and women who make the music of our lives since 2006. The Musicians Hall of Fame is the one and only museum in the world that honors the talented musicians who played on the greatest recordings of all time. It's a music city, huh? It's, uh, I mean, where else are you going to get the cats, all the cats that are in this room? The Grammy Museum Gallery at the Musicians Hall of Fame is an interactive facility that allows guests to explore the process of making a recording. Take drum lessons with Ringo Starr. Sing on stage with Ray Charles. Write a song with Desmond Child. Rap with Nelly. Or be Garth Brooks in our recording studio experience. Located in the heart of downtown Nashville, in the first floor of the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium. Come see what you've heard at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. Hi, I'm Tyler Rudesheim, Director of Events at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. Located within the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium, the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum is one of the most unique spaces in downtown Nashville, offering a versatile environment that caters to events of all sizes. Your guests will love this truly Nashville experience. We specialize in corporate dinners, music industry events, receptions, and more. Contact me today to book your next event. Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame backstage with Steve Lukather, Ringo Starr. How did this well, meeting happen? I always, you know, I heard about the All Star Band, loved it, and I always want to play with Ringo, get the trifecta because sadly John had passed, you know. And I thought when Greg Bissonette started playing the gig, you know, and Greg Bissonette, I and I mentioned, man, if there's ever an opening for him, I'd love to put my name in the hat, you know. I think it'd be a lot of fun for me. It'd be a great honor. He goes, you, Luke, you'd be perfect. He goes, I'll, I'll say something. So nothing happened at that point. And um, I had gone on the road with Toto. We were doing a show in Paris. And Greg was happened to be there with Ringo on a different incarnation of the All-Star Band. And he brought Dave Hart, who's the agent and the producer. And he would find the different musicians for Ringo every time he wanted to start a new All-Star Band. I think there's been 18 of them. And... He came, he came and saw the show and brought Dave backstage. And Dave was like, that's great, man. And, I, and he goes, you know, I work with Ringo. And I said, and I go, I'd do anything to be in that band. He goes, well, I think you'd be really good for the band. Let me, you know, get some music together and play it for Ringo and see what he says. And I owe Greg this and that, everything for this, for bringing Dave to this, because that was another life-changing moment for me. Much later in my career, this would have been, what, 2000, I don't know. 
eight or nine or something like that. So it took a minute for it to happen because I didn't join until 2012. But after a while, they were looking for somebody who want to change the band again. My name came up again, and Dave played some of our music for him. Hold the Line, Rosanna, Africa, and Africa. He goes, because the idea, you have to have three hits to be in the band, legit. Well, and then I called up Jim Keldner. I said, all right, I never do this, but Jim, can you put a good word in for me? Because I really want to do this. And apparently he did. Jim, once again, saves my ass. And between all the recommendations, we said, hey, you should get him in the band. I finally got the call to get to do the gig. And for a while, I, 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 they had me sit on going, God, I really want to find it. I really want to do this. I really want to do this so bad. I finally got the gig, and I had to postpone part of a tour that Toto was going to do in order to... I went to the guys and go, it's Ringo, man. Come on, man. you got to let me have a, just six weeks off. I'll stay out the rest of the year. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And um, I got the gig. And I went and I showed up and I met him the first night. Woke up the next morning and did the first rehearsal. And I'm going, this is the coolest thing ever. And he was cool. And then as the week of rehearsals went on, it got looser, more fun. And I guess he liked what I was doing. He thought I was a funny dude. And I got on with everybody else and I played everybody else's music. I studied and made sure I was right with everybody in the band. And that band really gelled. That first band was together for what five six five years and then he kept me on greg raleigh on and then changed out some of the other guys i mean i don't have any decision making in this that was up to him and upper management but i'm still in the band seven year, years later i'm going to come back uh next year as well my my goal is to be the longest member of the all-star okay. band you know what i mean well and plus we become great friends and we hang out and uh, it's a, 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 a very important deep friendship He's been so amazing to me. He's such a one. I mean, one of the coolest human beings I've ever met in my life. It was very obvious, just from watching you guys on stage, that he was very fond of you. You know, we could we could tell that. I mean, was so, I think that our friendship is real. Yeah. I mean, once you know, you get there's a man behind the Beatle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, of course he's always going to be Ringo. I could never call him by any other name. I call him Boss as a nickname. You know what I mean? Um, our friendship became real, and it wasn't based on fanboy stuff or anything like that. We actually legitimately hit it off. As, if his name was Bob Smith, he would be my friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. we just had a rapport. You meet somebody, and it feels good. And he felt, after he developed a trust with me that I never betrayed or never will, you know, I didn't go, hey, would you sign this, or can mm -hmm. you take this picture? I'd never do that to this guy. Yeah. I mean, it's just one, are you really my friend, or you just kind of want tell people that you know me mm -hmm. and you know on a much smaller scale I know what that feels like you know mm -hmm. are you really my friend or what mm -hmm. and the friendship is last and we he lives eight minutes from my house we hang and have dinner together often and we talk on the phone at least once a week and I genuinely care about him as a human being aside from the fact that he's a legend no well you know you know that while we were talking about he's seen as you have some of the worst and some of the very best in people because of the situation that you're I in. I think you're a musician. You know what that is. We lived through the headier times, of putting a nice sheen across that. There were crazy times. But he they, went through his. I went through mine. You know. Well, they. But you know, and he knows what's for real, and what he's he's saying. Oh, he yeah. definitely knows. Uh, yeah. He's played with the finest musicians in the world, so you can't. He knows. If I, if I sucked, I wouldn't have stayed on the gig. Yeah, but or if I, mean, I was. He knows you're a friend, that's what I'm talking about. Well, no, he, but, yeah. no, he could smell poop a mile away, man. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't want anything from him. Yeah. I never would. I just yeah. want his friendship for yeah. real. And I yeah. love Barbara and I love the family. And they've been gracious with me. Joe Walsh is his brother-in-law and Marjorie is lovely. I mean, she's really wonderful people. Yeah. And I've known Joe a little longer because we did some sessions with Henley and Joe was one of my first guitar heroes. And, you know, I, I always tell him that. And he's like, uh, you know, like, I, and he makes fun of me. He's like, are you going to play that fast stuff again? It's like he's just poking at me. But you know, it's Joe. And I, for a while, I was going, Joe, you don't want He was just find the, so the weak spot and poke at uh, But I'm honored to call him a friend as well. Another legendary cat. I'm honored to call you a friend, too. And oh, you so are, Joe. And you're very much a friend. Thank you for the wonderful tour. And this If you haven't been here, I mean, get a flight. I could stay in here for a month. I'd like to get a cot and stay in here and see if the ghosts come out at night. Thanks, okay? man. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Musicians Hall of Fame. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother.